Good morning, church. Would you be taking your copy of God's Word this morning and turning with us again to the Gospel of Luke? Today we'll conclude the pericope that we began last week in verse 16. This morning we'll be beginning with verse 20 and continuing all the way through verse 30. And as I read to you this morning, remember that these verses are the very words of the Lord. And Jesus closed the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all were speaking well of him and marveling at the gracious words which were coming from his lips. And they were saying, Is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, No doubt you will quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard took place at Capernaum, do also here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. But I say to you in truth, There were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the sky was shut up for three years and six months, when a great famine came over all the land, and yet Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. There were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. And all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. And they stood up and drove him out of the city and led him to the edge of the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went on his way. Thus far is the reading of the word of the Lord. You may be seated. And as we always do each week, we'll ask God for his blessing on this time. Father, as we come before you this morning, we are a people hungry to see Jesus Christ. We need him. We need to see the areas of our lives that are not in line with the will of Christ, our King, where we are tending towards that rebellious pottery image. And Lord, we need to see it so clearly that we can repent of it. By the power of your Holy Spirit and through the means of of your holy word. We know that this is not only possible, but that you intend to do this in each of us. And so realize that promise this morning, in this time as the word is preached. In the name of Jesus, we ask this. Amen. Amen. Well, every new election cycle seems to bring with it a greater sense of confirmation in our country's will to self-implode. Few saw this gradual grade towards self-examination 50, 60, 70 years ago, but journalist and satirist Malcolm Muggeridge was one of those with the prescience to see ahead. Speaking to the Hoover Institution in 1979, Muggeridge said, So the final conclusion would surely be that 
Whereas other civilizations have been brought down by attacks of barbarians from without, ours, speaking of the West, American in particular, had the unique distinction of training its own destroyers at its own educational institutions and then providing them with facilities for propagating their destructive ideology far and wide, all at the public expense. Thus did Western man decide to abolish himself, creating his own boredom out of his own affluence, his own vulnerability out of his own strength, his own, imp his own impotence out of his own erotomania, himself blowing the trumpet that brought the walls of his own city tumbling down and having convinced himself that he was too numerous, labored with pill and scalpel and syringe to make himself fewer. Until at last, having educated himself into imbecility and polluted and drugged himself into stupefaction, he keeled over a weary, battered old brontosaurus and became extinct. What is bringing about the great decline in America today? What is the cause of our slippery slide into oblivion? I would argue that it is the same thing that made the city of Nazareth want to throw Jesus off a cliff. It is the utter hatred of the rule and sovereign power of God Almighty. We hate that he has complete control and that he has sent his own Christ, the one that he loved and the one who fulfilled the mission that he had planned ahead of time. We hate it. He wasn't what the world wanted. He refuses to offer salvation on anyone's terms but his own. Nothing but faith in the blood of the Lamb will do for this God. Regardless of what we or the Jews in Jesus' day sinfully thought, Yahweh is in control. Jesus is the Christ. And his blood is the only exit from damnation. It is either kiss the sun or be shattered like the rebellious pottery that we are. Last week, as I began this text and the exposition of it, I spoke to you about the return of the king, and that was Jesus' homecoming to Nazareth. And then we looked at the revelation of the king, that was Jesus' reading from Isaiah the prophet from chapter 61, where he said, I am this servant of the Lord, and this is what my ministry is going to be about. This morning, to kind of give you a guide of where we're going, in verses 20 to 22, we will see the rejection of the king. And then in 23 to 27, Jesus tells them what the result of their rejection will be. And finally, in 28 to 30, we will see the reaction of the ungodly. Well, let's begin with those first three verses, 20 to 22. Jesus has, as I said, read from the scroll of Isaiah. In chapter 61, he speaks of the coming servant of Yahweh. 
That servant, you remember, would be exalted by the Jewish nation. But how would that happen? Well, it would be through, as we learn in chapter 52 and 53 of Isaiah, the marring of his body, the piercing of himself for our transgressions. And he, this servant of the Lord, would usher in an eschatological age of liberty and freeing of captives. By verse 20 of chapter 4, Jesus has concluded that weekly synagogue reading from the prophets. And he closes the scroll, rolls it back up, and he hands it over to the attending Hazan, which was the reader. That was the title of the man in the synagogue who had charge of the, the documents and would put them in the ark when they were finished or bring them out. And then Jesus sits down, as was customary for the rabbis. He would take a seat, and that's when he would give his exposition or teaching with the disciples, those that he was educating closest to him. Now Luke says in verse 20 that the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. A little Greek word study for you this morning, and it's one that will be familiar whether you know any Greek or not. Atenazontes is the Greek word here for their eyes were fixed on him. This is where we get our English word for attention. But it's even stronger than what you might think of, of a student sitting in class listening to a teacher. It's a favorite term for Luke in Luke and Acts. He uses it 12 times compared to its use only two times in the rest of the New Testament. And what Luke wants to communicate is an intense, focused, emotional moment here. Jesus is teaching alone. Not anything else, but his teaching alone has captured his hearers. He didn't have to do a miracle. He didn't have to have the voice of Yahweh speak over him while he was teaching to affirm what he was saying. He didn't have to have his face shine in front of them as Moses did. Sadly, most pastors in American churches think the word of God is rather stodgy and need to spice it up. And so they have the sanctuary dressed up in a Jurassic Park theme in order to get eyeballs. They have Beyonce come lead worship before their TED talk of a sermon. They have a white apology night to garner sympathy from the racist minorities in their own communities. But because of his faithful attendance to the assembly of the synagogue, which we read about last week, and because of his commitment to studying and preaching the word of God, Jesus had the people hanging on every one of his words. Beloved, God designed the basic means of grace to equip ordinary men for extraordinary purposes. Now I know Christ was no ordinary man. The son of God, he was the word made flesh. He's the king of kings. He is omniscient. He is everlasting. But at the same time, he is the elder brother in whose footsteps we are commanded to walk. We're commanded to follow the example of Christ. And so I encourage you this morning, if you want to take the next step in your discipleship, if you want gravitas, that weightiness, which brings attention to the kingdom of Christ in your life, if you desire to be used in the kingdom and not waste the talents that God has given you, I ask you, are you attending to the ordinary means of grace? 
I know I've said something like this for several weeks in a row now, but it's more than just hitting play on your CTK Bible reading app and listening along. Are you attending to what you hear? Are you seeking to meet with Christ, to learn to love and obey him more? Question 74 of our Puritan Catechism asks this, how is the word to be read and heard that it may become effectual for salvation? And salvation there is a comprehensive term. It doesn't just mean our justification, but also our continuing sanctification leading to our glorification. How is the word of God to be read and heard that it may become effectual in that way? Answer, the word of God may become effectual to salvation in this way. We must attend to it with diligence, preparation, and prayer that we might receive it with faith and love, lay it up in our hearts through the means of meditation, and practice it in our lives through obedience to Christ and his commands. Could your morning routine include some more of those? Preparation, diligence, prayer, reading with faith, meditation, and obedience. The same goes for sermon listening and communion and evangelism and all the rest of the ordinary means that God uses us to grow up into salvation. J.C. Ryle said, There are thousands who listen regularly to the preaching of the gospel, and admire it while they listen. They do not dispute the truth of what they hear. They even feel a kind of intellectual pleasure in hearing a good and powerful sermon. But their religion never goes beyond this point. Their sermon hearing does not prevent them from living a life of thoughtlessness, worldliness, and sin. Now Jesus has sat down and Verse 21 tells us that he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Notice the way that Luke phrases this. He introduces Jesus' words with, he began to say. Luke doesn't give us Jesus' full exposition of Isaiah 61. We really just get his sermon outline. We really get the header, the beginning of the sermon, what he began to say. Point number one of his sermon was, I am the servant of Yahweh from Isaiah 61. And point number two was, the new age of liberty and freedom that I will bring starts today. The Greek word peplorotai, which is the word for fulfilled in verse 21, sounds past tense. It was fulfilled, but it speaks actually of an ongoing or existing state of fulfillment. It is not now and only now, but now an enduring now, a new season of now. When a husband and wife are planning a family vacation, at some point they will tell their children, this summer on such and such a day, we are all going to go to the beach. And the children spend the following days in expectation of the moment when dad will come into the room and make the announcement, today you hear and you are witnessing, my words are fulfilled. We are going to the beach. Now Jesus is saying the same thing here. Come on, my countrymen. It's time to get in the car and we're going to the celestial city. And I am the servant who's meant 
to take you there. Now, though we don't get any more of Jesus's words in his expedition, we do get the crowd's response. And as you can tell, it was a mixed response. And all were speaking well of him, more literally, all were testifying of him, and marveling at the gracious words which were coming forth from his lips. And they were also saying, is not this Joseph's son? Now, I know the first part of that sounds like really good sermon feedback, but it's actually some of the worst that you can hear. This is a nightmare situation for a preacher. You boldly proclaim the uncut truth to the people of God, and the congregation goes around saying how good a job you did, but they don't want to submit to your words. They don't want to submit to God whose words you just proclaimed. Well, he certainly is a good preacher. I just don't agree with what he said. It's neat to think that the servant of Yahweh could come in our days, but can you believe this illegitimate boy would say that he's the servant of the Lord? This can't be the servant of Yahweh. We know this kid. He's from our town. Jesus is ready with his response, but before we get there, I want to preach to preachers for a minute. This is the kind of feedback that most pastors are actually looking for today. They want the glory that comes from men. You might think that that's a bit of an overstatement. But I want to ask, why do then preachers feel the necessity to play movie clips during sermons instead of opening and expounding and commanding the sheep from the word of God? Why do they use personal anecdotes about themselves, making themselves look so humble and contrite and approachable and personable and never preach to their congregation's sins and tell their men to be leaders in the home and their women to die to the ungodly desire to lead those men and to preach from the pulpit and to put on some clothes? Why do they tell the sheep who are in sin that it would probably be best if they just found another church rather than going through the difficult process of church discipline for the sake of bringing the lost sheep home? Why do they hire secular musicians to lead their worship services or play popular but theologically famished music instead of teaching the sheep to sing the words of God? It is because... Deep inside, they love the glory that comes from men rather than the glory that comes from God. I've actually heard people say before, I can't help it if people don't submit to the word of God. What am I supposed to do? I'm not the Holy Spirit. It's not like I can preach the word like it's required of people. But hey, they do think I do a good job preaching. Back when we planted Christ the King, I remember at one of our prayer meetings, Ken Walker prayed that God would keep the elders of Christ the King humble, that we wouldn't become puffed up with pride because of our position. And I want to encourage you, brethren, keep praying that. The desire to be liked has to constantly be fought. The pastor's goal should never be popularity. When we shepherd or when we preach, 
Our charge is to proclaim the word of God in order that we might reveal to you the glory of God and expose at the same time your depravity and sin in a way that you are cut to the heart about it and you sense anew your need for the Son of God and you run to him in repentance and worship. That's what this time is about every Sunday morning. And if I or anyone else stands up here and attempts to glorify himself or out of a sense of fear and a desire to please man and not God preaches to you what you want to hear rather than what God requires, then may God in the church judge that man unworthy of the platform and remove him from teaching. And now that I preach to myself and preachers everywhere, let me say something to you. The pastor has a responsibility in preaching, but as I alluded to earlier, the sheep have responsibility as well. What makes you, Christ the King, unprepared each week to hear of and love more and be completely submissive to the word of God revealed to us through Jesus Christ? Is there some, some unreconciled grievance with another member at this church? John warned us in his epistle that the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. How can you offer your gift at the altar when you know that your brother has something against you? Is there an anxiety or a fear or unbelief that God cannot or will not do something to deliver you from a current trial that you're in? You can't grasp that faith, as small as a mustard seed, can move the mountain that you're currently facing? Is there division in your heart with this or that member because of an inordinate affection for theology or a modern-day personality? I follow MacArthur. I follow Wilson. Whoever follows Piper is a moron. Let me ask you, do you listen each week to the big names so that you can learn more about and fall in deeper love with Jesus? Do you walk away from their teaching with a deeper affection for the Savior of your soul? Or are you becoming more and more of a niche guy or gal with no patience or time for anyone who sees it differently from your team? Is the one thing that consumes your mind the unity of the brethren here at Christ the King or is it trumpeting, or excuse me, or is it trumping that surprisingly strong argument that brother gave you as you left last Wednesday? Paul said, and I, brothers, though he had the desire, he said, I was not able to speak to you like spiritual men, but as to fleshy men, as to infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not able to receive it. Indeed, even now you're still not able, for you are still fleshy. Why? Why couldn't they receive the word of God preached? For there was jealousy and strife among you. And since that's the case, are you not fleshy and are you not walking like mere men? Brethren, I want to ask you this morning, what is keeping you from seeing Christ in the text of Scripture this Sunday morning and each Sunday you come? 
Whatever it is that God is convicting you of right now, and it could be a host of other things, repent. Repent so that you can see Jesus. Don't be like these Nazarenes whose hearts were hardened by the deceitfulness of their sin. Brothers and sisters, don't let anything sully your love for in pursuit of Christ. Let his word each Sunday through your prayer and diligence and preparation have its way with you. Let's look at the next section of text, the results of the rejection of the people, verses 23 to 27. And Jesus said to them, no doubt you will quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard took place at Capernaum, do also here in your hometown as well. This is one of those moments of the omniscience of Jesus. In his infinite wisdom, he instantly reads the collective mind of the entire crowd sitting there. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, he hears their inner thoughts and he quotes a proverb, not a Solomonic proverb. You're not going to find this one in the book of Proverbs. It's a colloquialism of the time. And it sounds something to our ears like, well, you did it over there, so do it over here. That's what the part about Capernaum seems to communicate. And it's likely that there's regional jealousies involved, you know, those inbred Capernaum folks. They think they're so special. They're worse than North Alabamians. <laughs> However, the undertow of unbelief is more aggressive than that. What Jesus perceived was not physician, physician you healed there, so why don't you heal here? That's not what he perceived in their minds. It's actually something like, well, you said you're the servant of Yahweh. Get on with it. Show us your stuff. You professed, now produce. Put your money where your mouth is, Mr. Servant of Yahweh. And that even makes it sound like it's all about the proving of Jesus but it's even worse than that. The rebellion goes even deeper in their hearts. The word of God made flesh is now, in effect, as Jesus has read the thoughts of their mind, sitting on trial. And the ungodly people of Nazareth are going to decide for themselves whether or not he meets their standard of a Messiah. They've spent so many years in expectation of a savior of their own designs. One who looks... As Psalm 50, verse 21 says, all together like themselves. Here, they assume the place of God, sitting as judges on a really demonic episode of Israel's Got Talent, with their hands hovering dangerously close to that elimination button. If you're the servant of Yahweh, then just show us what you've got. That challenge, by the way, ought to sound eerily familiar to you. If you're the servant of Yahweh, do something. Where did that come from? Well, it's the very same tactic that Satan used just a few verses back. If you're the son of God, do something. And that's not the only similarity between these two different narratives. Last night in family worship, one of my children made the connection that Satan tempted Jesus to jump from a high place and 
Today's text ends with the crowd seeing if they can help that little parody along. Someone might say, I don't really see what's wrong, though, with Jesus doing something to prove that he is the Messiah. I mean, the apostles did miraculous signs and wonders. Everybody talked about Jesus's miraculous signs and wonders. Didn't that prove who he was, who they were? What's wrong with it, though, is that it is a, a complete cold shoulder violation of the word of God. From Deuteronomy 13, verses 1 to 3, we read, If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you, and gives you a sign or a wonder, okay? Prophet does signs and wonders. And the sign or the wonder comes true concerning which he spoke to you, saying, let us walk after other gods whom you have not known, and let us serve them. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For Yahweh your God is testing you to find out if you love Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul. In short, the prophet's proof isn't in his signs, it's in his words and the fulfillment of his words. Jesus says as much in Matthew 12, 37, for by your words you will be justified and by your words you will be condemned. And just a few verses later in that same passage, a wicked and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. Yet under the diminutive power of the evil one, these people in Nazareth spurn God's words and they demand signs. And they're going to continue to do that throughout the rest of this gospel. Now you can't see this in your legacy standard Bible or if you have a new American standard Bible, they don't use this word, but the word acceptable from back in verse 19 and the word Welcome in verse 24 are actually the same Greek root word, dekton and dektos, respectively. So, utilizing some clever wordplay, Jesus, doing the work of the prophet, came to both proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, but admits that unfortunately a prophet is unacceptable in his own hometown. Now, our Lord doesn't go on and elaborate about their rejection any more than this. But he does tell them the results of their rejection. What's going to happen if you reject the servant of Yahweh? In two separate stories from the book of Kings, both of which communicate harsh, harsh affliction sent to the people of God, in one case a great famine, and in another case what seems to be widespread leprosy, and in both stories, the judgment of Yahweh on his people was being utilized to turn them back from their idolatry and to the true worship of Yahweh. And in both stories, no one repented, and so God saved none of them. And in both cases, God sent mighty prophets, Elijah and Elisha, respectively, and in God's own electing love, he used them not to save Israel, or Judah, but Gentiles. Hmm. I'm this close, Jesus is saying. I'm a member of this community, but you're rejecting my words and demanding signs. 
Remember what happened to your fathers who rejected God's words. He left them and sent salvation to those who were far off who were willing to receive it. It's a remarkably similar message to John the Baptist. Do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. Indeed, the ax is already laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. This is why the Nazarene Jews got boiling mad at Jesus. Because the servant of Yahweh refused to submit to them because he wouldn't fit into their box. He wasn't under their thumb. He wouldn't bow to their wicked wishes. He was not obligated to save them. That's infuriating. But he does whatever he pleases because he is king and we are not. When Jeremy and I were meeting and discussing the details of planning this church, one theme that kept coming up as a desire on both of our hearts that we wanted to communicate to the watching world was that Christ is king, that he alone is sovereign and that he is Lord of all. And that is in fact how the church got its name. And this is our message to Anderson County, that this world is falling apart because it has rejected the kingship of Jesus Christ. He will not bow to our wishes, but the whole world will eventually bow to his. So our message to them is repent while there's still time. He isn't going to take orders from his creation because, as you know, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given completely over to him. It's so often that I sit and I listen to the pastoral prayer and I think, we must have had a conversation about this at some point because you're saying the exact same things I'm going to say in the sermon. And Jeremy and Daniel and I never talk about this together. The Lord is so good to us. All authority in heaven and on earth was not lent to Jesus. It was not temporarily put in the custody of Jesus, but the full rulership now and forever will belong to King Jesus. The unregenerate cannot stand this sovereignty. They backtalk him. They say things like, he is unjust to find fault with us. Nobody can resist him, so I blame him. This is as ridiculous as Jeremy alluded to in his pastoral prayer. A lump of clay sassing the potter who has complete control over it. Saying something silly like, will the thing molded say to its molder, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the authority over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? The answer of the unregenerate is no, he doesn't. He got me into this mess. It's his fault and I hate him for it. They take their stand against our God's Messiah. They claim that they will not keep his binding chains. But the one enthroned in highest heaven even higher, mocks them to scorn, on them derision he reigns. Unfortunately, to make matters worse, the church in America has largely fanned the flames of this rebellion. We embrace the goodness of God together as a global and national church. We embrace the greatness of God. We embrace the benevolence of God, the commitment of God to love for and care for his people 
But when we get to the part about God's absolute authority, everybody pulls a Nazareth. The potter does not have that much right over the clay. I don't ever remember becoming a reformed Christian. I just read the whole Bible and it was clear reading it cover to cover that God was in control of everything in all creation, including salvation. Shortly after I was converted, I was asked to help facilitate discussion groups with youth kids and then to start leading. Almost immediately, I had problems with parents. I've told you this story before. They came saying things like, Chris, why did you tell my kid this whole bit about God being sovereign? To which I would always respond, let me explain. I'll show you this verse. Look, let's read here in Romans. And the closing statement before, don't ever bring this up in class again, was always, whatever it means, it can't mean that. When you deny, beloved, and this is what really gets us back to my opening statement and the situation we find ourselves in, when you deny the biblically unassailable teaching of God's authority and rule over all of his creation, you're going to eventually wind up with anarchy. It's either Christ or it's chaos. If there is no king in Israel, then every man will eventually end up doing whatever is right in his own eyes. And in our country, the ingredients for the man-made Christianity meatloaf went into the oven decades ago. Why are we so surprised today that we have Christian children transitioning genders and their Christian parents making excuses for why God is actually okay with it? Why has God largely left our nation to its own famines and leprosies to save and bless other lands, those in which people reside who will respond to his words and produce the fruits of his kingdom? I mean, the answer is plain. We need to repent, beloved. We need to repent of all the things about God we at times sinfully wish were not true and then submit to all that he reveals to us in the scriptures. There aren't many words that I can share with you this morning or I can't share Jeremy's thoughts or Daniel's thoughts, but The most important thing to share on this topic is the words of God. These are not obscure and cultic fantasies that our church has contrived or wants to shove down people's throats. These are the plain teachings of Holy Scripture and America would do well to surrender to each one of them. The first thing that you need to know about God's sovereignty is that He, in absolute sovereignty, created all things. All things came into being through Him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has not come into being. John 1, 3. Yet for us, there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we exist. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we exist. 1 Corinthians 8, 6. No conservative Christian gives a second thought to the right they have over their own personal property. But how many would never let God have absolute rights over his? Second thing, having created all things, God has the right to and does in fact rule over all things. Daniel 4.35 says, He does according to his will in the host of heaven 
and amongst the inhabitants of the earth, and no one can strike against his hand or say to him, what have you done? Isn't that what it seems like in our culture today? People wanting to slap God's hand away from what he's trying to do? You get away from us. Let us mind our own business. Yahweh, Psalm 103 says, has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. Even over entire nations, God makes nations great and he destroys them. He enlarges nations and leads them away, Job 12, 23. The third thing, the things that God rules over concur with his degrees. Yahweh works all things according to the counsel of his own will, Ephesians 1.11. Again from the Psalms, whatever the Lord pleases in heaven and on earth, in the sea and all deeps, he does. Whatever. God works in creation in such a way that each thing in the universe, in accordance with its own distinctive characteristics and property, brings about what God has decreed to happen. God is the divine or primary cause of all things, and his creation is the means or secondary cause. As it is written in Proverbs, the lot is cast into the lap. But later tonight when you play Yahtzee, remember, it's every decision is from the Lord. Fourth, because this is God's creation and because he is good, he is caring for and preserving all that is. In Christ, all things hold together. Colossians 1.17. Jesus is continually, always, unceasingly holding up all things by the word of his power. Hebrews 1.3. Paul told even the pagan Gentiles, in him we live and move and even exist. And if God got tired of this whole project of creation and desired to scrap it all and start over, he would, as Job 24 reveals to us, gather to himself his spirit and his breath and all flesh would perish together and man would return to dust. Finally, the one that people really have a problem with, God is not only sovereign over his creation and the way that it functions and preserving it, but he is also sovereign over salvation. So then he, that is God, mercies whomever he desires and he hardens whomever he desires, Romans 9, 18. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified, Romans 8, 29 and 30. When the Gentiles heard the gospel, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord as the secondary means. God has brought about the gospel and they've responded to it through the power of the Holy Spirit by faith and the primary means as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Acts 13, 48. This is our God and he is the only God. There is no other. The only one worthy of worship. And if our nation will be saved, we as the church must turn and show them how to submit to this God, for there is no other. I'll conclude now with verses 28 to 30 and the reaction of the ungodly. In response to Jesus, Nazareth has gone from glorifying in verse 15 of chapter 4 to astonishment 
in verse 22, and now in verse 28, we see that they're filled with rage. They're filled with rage as they heard these things, and they stood up and drove him out of the city, led him to the edge of the hill on which their city had been built, in order to throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went on his way. What was it that would compel such wrath that they would attempt what Satan had wished for just a few verses back. It's the same thing that incited Satan against God in the first place. It's the same thing that people hate him for today and want to throw off his binding chains, and that is that our God is sovereign over all. He reigns. He is in control. He chooses by himself. He will mercy whomever he will have mercy on, and he will have compassion on whomever he wants to have compassion on. People who are confronted with the glorious truth of God's rule over all things have only two options. They can submit or they can rebel. When you gently rebel, as many in the Christian church have done for years now, and you try and take away even just one aspect of God's sovereignty, you begin the inevitable process of dismantling the rest of him in the scriptures. How did these Jews get to the point where they were filled with murderous rage, which here led to an attempted homicide, and in the not-too-distant future, will lead to their joyful shouts at his own execution. It's the same way the apostate Western church got to the point where it supports all all the things that God hates, and if he were to come back, they would likely try and crucify him again. We have decided that we don't want this God. We don't want him to rule over us. Jesus from Luke 19, 12 to 13, is not only true of the Jews, but it could be true of many churches today. A nobleman went into a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and then return. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. What then does God require of us today, church? How can we avoid becoming one of these from Psalm 2 who ends up spurning Christ's rule and charting our own gloomy destiny? I want to encourage you to think about three things. Submission, joy, and praise. First, we must submit. Do you celebrate the God who is who He is, Exodus 3, 14. Do you love the God who chooses to have mercy on whomever he wills and hardens whomever he wills? Do you love that God? Is he not the good judge of all the earth? Will he not inevitably do what is right? God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Inevitably, I'm going to preach a sermon on the sovereignty of God and being joyful about God's sovereignty, and then it's going to be a really difficult week. And I'm going to struggle with God's sovereignty and think, oh Lord, this is such a difficult week. This morning when I got up and came down to my computer, one of my daughters had left a note with a Bible verse on it to remind and encourage me, and it was from Isaiah chapter 30, verse 15. For thus, Lord Yahweh, the Holy One of Israel, has said, 
In repentance and rest, you will be saved. And in quietness and trust is your might. That's our posture towards this God. He reveals himself to us in the scripture. We repent of our own thoughts about him and we bring ourselves completely before him, resting in all the glory of who he is. Second, I encourage you to take joy in who he is and what he has done. Joy is that deep-seated satisfaction in who God is and all that he is about in this world. If you are in Christ right now, no matter what you are going through, God will not change. And something else that won't change is that he loves you. You have more in Christ than anyone in history forever could dream of. George Soros is in abject poverty compared to the gift of grace that you have received in Jesus, your Redeemer. God was pleased to elect you and die for you and raise you up with him in Christ Jesus in the heavenly places. And those who rebel against this, he will justly destroy. And both of those truths, not just one, but both, ought to bring us joy in this God who is our king. Lastly, as God warms in your heart that joy for who he is and what he's about in this world, praise him for it. Your gladness in him should come out of your mouth. If I were to suggest a prayer of thanksgiving, and I knew for a fact the Lord will love this prayer, it would go something like, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love, by predestining us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he graciously bestowed on us in the beloved. Make a practice each day, church, through family worship and at other times, with diligence, attentiveness, and prayer, praising this God. Sing with your voice, out loud, and in congruence with the joy of your heart, regardless of what your children or spouse think of you. The results of rejection are that we, as Malcolm Muggeridge once said, go extinct, and that under the judgment of God, rightly so. But the reward of faith and submission to Christ is nothing less than the salvation of our souls. So church, going forward, who will be your king? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for all that it reveals to us about you. Please help us to see the error of those men and women in Nazareth who heard that the servant of Yahweh had come to finally do all that the scriptures said, but they didn't like what the scriptures really said about that servant of Yahweh. And if there be anything in us that wickedly or sinfully wishes that this or that thing was not true or tries to alter Jesus, the one that you sent, the one that you were pleased with on the mission that you prepared for him, there's anything in us that is displeased or wishes that could be changed in any way, please help us to repent and submit and find joy in and praise out loud that King of Kings who has saved us from our sins. We trust that he has done this because we've heard the gospel 
and we have believed. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.